Well, good morning, church. We are glad that you are here this morning. We are going to continue in our series called Together. Uh, we've been in this series for a little while. If we can go ahead and get the front house lights on, that would be great. Uh, we're going to go ahead and stay in the series together. We've been doing it for several weeks now, and really the whole series of Together has really been about this idea of the church. Who are we as a church? How are we supposed to function within the context of the church? What does it look like to be the church? And so we've just been talking about this notion of together. And the thing about together is this, is that when you think about it, we've, we've started the journey by looking at the truth of togetherness. And the truth is this, that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that you're part of what the Bible calls the body of Christ, which means that you're needed and you are valuable to his church. And so we started with the truth of togetherness, and then we kind of moved to what threatens to the togetherness. What are some things that can threaten the unity that we are to have as the body of Christ? And so we talked about things like conflict. We talked about things like the lack of boundaries. And then last week was probably many of you your favorite week as we got to hear the story of Tyler Peck and we talked about the beauty of togetherness. And the beauty is this, is that we all have a story, right? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, like a while ago, we sang this song, when he called my name, I ran out of the grave. Really what we're saying is that when Jesus called me my name, when he revealed himself to me, that I ran from death until life and gave my life to him. And when you did that, you have a story in Christ. And if you're a follower of Jesus, every single one of us have a story. But the challenge last week was this, is what is your story? But more importantly, will you share your story. See, last week in Acts chapter 26, we saw how God told Paul how he wanted to use his story. He said, Paul, I want you to share this story because when you share it, I'm going to use your story to open up the eyes of those who are blind. I'm going to use your story to open the eyes of those that are spiritually blind. But not only that, I'm going to use your story to help nudge them to move from death and darkness to life and to light. And not about you, but just think about that. Do you want God to use your story so that somebody else's eternity could be changed forever? Do you want somebody to use your story like that? It only happens if we share it. And so today we're going to talk about another issue with togetherness. We're going to talk about the glue of togetherness. In fact, this is one of those issues that we talked about week one. I mentioned it in passing because today I knew that I wanted to unpack it more thoroughly. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to the book of Romans Romans chapter 12 is where we're going to be this morning. Romans chapter 12 is where we're going to be. And I'm going to ask you, because I'm not reading a lengthy passage, would you stand in honor of reading God's word? Romans chapter 12, I will begin reading in verse 9. And it says this, let love be what? Genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in the spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Let's pray. God, I love you, and I pray that you would open our eyes to the truth of your word this morning, Lord, may you speak to us in a powerful way as we think about the glue, what holds us together, Lord. Would you open our eyes to that today? And it's in your son's name we pray. And everybody said amen. 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 Have a seat. Have a seat. Now, as you look at the passage, I want to back up. I want to give you a little bit of background because Paul is writing to a church in Rome, Christians in the area of Rome. 
And what he starts with in chapter 12, many of you know the beginning of chapter 12, when he says stuff like this, I urge you therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, and this is your spiritual act of worship. You remember when Paul said that? So he starts this, this chapter 12 with this encouragement to Christians. He says, listen, I want you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, what does he mean? He's saying, listen, church in Rome, I want you to live a life yielded to what God has for you. I want you every day, every moment, every hour of the day, every second as you go through this life, I want you to offer yourself and say, Lord, whatever you have for me, whatever you want me to do, whatever you want me to say, whatever you want me to be, Lord, the answer is always going to be yes, because I'm going to live a life yielded to you. So that's what Paul says. He starts the chapter by saying, live a life yielded to the Lord. And then he goes on and he says, you know, as you're living that life, you need to remember something. You're connected. And you're connected, he says, to a body. And Paul, in the, kind of the, the first, like, verse 4 through 8, Paul reiterates something that we talked about in 1 Corinthians 12, when Paul says, listen, as you live this life yielded to the Lord, you need to know this, that you're connected to a body. You're not doing this thing alone. Aren't you thankful you don't have to do life alone? You're not, you're not in this thing alone. You are connected to a body. And listen, he's telling them as a, as a believer, <clears throat> as you go through life and as you live yielded to the Lord, don't forget that you're never designed to be on your own. Remember we talked about this a couple weeks ago, that really we need to start focusing on not independence, but interdependence, right? We need each other. And he says, listen, you need to remember as you live this life yielded to the Lord that you are connected to a body, which means you're valuable and you're essential and you are needed. So as you live, live for the Lord. Live yielded to the Lord. But don't forget, you're connected to a body of believers called the body of Christ. And then it's here in this part of chapter 12 that we see Paul shift the narrative. And he moves away from this idea of body, and he introduces the idea of family. In fact, if you picked up on it, he used the word brotherly affection. Did you hear that word a while ago? As I read it, brotherly affection. And what Paul's doing is saying, listen, as someone who's called to live a life yielded to the Lord, do that. But don't forget that you're connected to a body. And he talks about that. And then here he says, listen, as you're living connected to the body, I want you to know here's how the body is supposed to function. You ready? Here's how the body of Christ is supposed to operate. It's supposed to operate as a family. Now think about that. See, I love that because of this. Hear me on this, church. That means the church is not an organization. That means the church is an organism, right? That means that when we come together, that you are family to me, that you are not just my brothers and sisters in Christ because we're all going to heaven, but we are family together. He says, listen, church, I want you to know that as you live a life, yield to the Lord, you're connected to a body. But even bigger than that, this body is to operate and to function like a family. That means we're coming to your house, Marty, for Thanksgiving, every single one of us, right? <laughs> he said, I want you to, he starts this idea of family. Now listen, it's at this, in this context, hear me, in this context that Paul begins to explore with us the glue of togetherness. And let me tell you what the glue is. The glue is something I mentioned very first week. It's love. What holds us together? Love does. And it's in the context of family that Paul begins to talk about love. And so I want you to look with me. Go back to verse 9, the very first verse. He said, look what he says about love. He says, let your love be genuine. Now, in the original language, this is a command of Paul. And he's saying, listen, I want your love 
for the Lord, and I want your love for other people. I want your love to be genuine. That word genuine just means to be authentic, to be real. He said, I want your love to be real, and I want your love to be authentic. So as you think about your love for God, and as you think about your love for other people, I want that love. Listen, I want that love not to be fabricated, not to be mustered up. I want it to be real and authentic. Have you ever met somebody that they were what you would call a genuine person? I mean, like what you see is what you get. I mean, now listen, that could be really bad or that could be really good. But I'm talking about, have you ever met somebody that was super genuine that, that, you know, like if they were an ornery cuss in private, they were an ornery cuss in in public. If they were holy in private, they were holy. I mean, they just were genuine. Have you ever, ever met somebody like that? Okay. That's what Paul's saying. I want the love that you have to be genuine, to be authentic, to be real. Now, it's interesting here, the word love that Paul uses, and you probably already know this, the word that Paul uses in the Greek language is the word agape. Now, we know that there are many words, the Greek words for the word love in the New Testament. There are three primary words. We're actually going to come to one that's not a primary one in a little bit. But the primary words are first eros, which is the, the physical love between a husband and wife. It's that physical intimacy. That's, that's, that's eros, that kind of love. Then there's the phileo kind of love, which is family or brotherly kind of love. It's where we get the name Philadelphia. And then there's agape love. And that's the word that Paul uses here. He said, I want your agape love to be authentic and real. Now, that word agape, that agape love is a love that is unconditional. But let me give you a little bit more to that. It's an unconditional affection. It's unconditional devotion. And it's unconditional loyalty to someone or something. He said, I want your love to be agape. Now, here's what's really fascinating. You ready? That in the Greek New Testament, when it was written, that the Greek culture with which Jesus came onto the scene with, a Greek culture with which the Apostle Paul had to write and address, that Greek culture that was created rarely used the word agape. They rarely use this word agape. I mean, you can go all the way back. And the culture that Jesus was born in was this Greek-influenced culture. It was one that went all the way through the first century. You see it in different places in the Bible. You can see it from the standpoint of when Paul in Acts 17 goes into the city of Athens. He deals with Greek philosophers. He goes to the Greek Areopagus where they share the philosophies. He deals with the gods. I mean, some of you heard of Greek mythology, right, like Zeus and all of those. That was very much a part of this culture. And one of the words that the Greek culture rarely used was the word agape. And you know why? Because they viewed that kind of love as weak. Because they thought that kind of love represented an unselfish devotion to someone else. And you and I would say, that's exactly what that word means. And they in their culture would say, if you have an unselfish devotion to someone else, you are weak and shallow. However, that's exactly the kind of love that Jesus has called us to, isn't it? That's exactly the kind of love the Apostle Paul has called us to. He has called us to agape kind of love. Now think about it. When Jesus calls us to this kind of love, he says, in fact, Jesus said this way, the way that the world will know who you are is by what? The love you have for another, the world will know that you belong to me. The world will know that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, he says, by the love you have for others. That's how the people, I mean, when you love agape in this world, the world will rise up and take notice. Hear me on that, church. 
When we love agape, when we have this unconditional affection, devotion, commitment, and loyalty to God and to other people, the world will rise up and take notice. You know why? Because that's foreign to our world. That idea of unconditional love doesn't exist. We live in a world where love is always conditional. It's if, and, but, and all those kinds of conjunctions. It's conditional. And listen, but that's the kind of love that God has called us to, to this kind of agape kind of love. And when we love people like that, listen, the world notices. Do you know why they notice? Because agape love is genuine. Agape love is not hypocritical. Agape love is not filled with self-interest. Agape love is not polluted. Agape love is not wrongly motivated. Agape love is unconditional affection, commitment, and loyalty to somebody else. And Jesus even tells us, if we will love people like that, the world will rise up and take notice. Now hear me on that, church. Here's what that also means. That if we choose not to live that way, you think the world's noticing that too? When we, like, I mean, can I, can I, I'm just going to be honest this morning. I've been in church a long time in my life, never experienced in this church. Hopefully it never will happen. But can I tell you some of the meanest people I've ever been around are church people? Can you say amen to that? If you didn't say amen, we might be talking about you right now. I mean, I have seen some of the most hateful, backbiting, gossiping people I've ever been around in my life in the church. Isn't that sad? And do you think people notice that? Sure they do. They don't want to be part of that nonsense. But Jesus says when you rise up and you love agape, when you love unconditional, the world is going to take notice because that love is set apart from every other kind of love. That love, everybody notices because that's not how the world operates. That's not how the world functions. And when you love like that, man, there's no hypocrisy in that. When you love like that, there's no self-interest in that. When you love like that, there's no wrong motivations. And we are called to love with an agape kind of love. And so as we think about the family of God, Paul gives us this command. You ready? Let your love, agape, be genuine. Now, so Paul has given this command to the church of Rome. Now, what Paul could have done is Paul could have just thrown this statement out, let your love be genuine, and went on to another topic. But Paul does what Paul often does, and he says, okay, I've given you this statement, let your love be genuine, but here's what I know you're all asking. Well, what does that look like, Right? What does it look like for our love? What does genuine love do? And so for the rest of this passage, he gives us four things that genuine love does. And the first one's found also in verse 9. He said, let your love be genuine, period, end of sentence. And here's what genuine love does. You ready? It abhors what is evil and holds fast to what is good. Genuine love, now follow me authentic love. If we say that we love God and our love is real and our love is authentic and our love is agape, we have an unconditional loyalty, commitment, and devotion to the Lord. Listen, if we have a, a, a genuine agape love for the Lord, we will abhor what is evil and we will cling to what is good. He says, listen, genuine love hates what is evil and clings to what is good. Now, let me tell you what that means. That word abhor means to hate or to be disgusted with. And so he says, those of you that have genuine love toward your heavenly father, you should abhor what is evil. What does that mean? That means that I refuse to rejoice in any kind of unrighteousness. I refuse to rejoice in any kind of ungodliness. For example, all of us have been in contexts and environments where someone has told a joke that we shouldn't have laughed at, but we did, right? Now you're like, I'm not going to say anything because I don't want you to know. Yeah, we've all done that, right? 
Or maybe somebody has been made fun of who is a creation of the Most High God, and we've laughed at that even though we were uncomfortable with that. And what he's saying when he says, I want you to pour what is evil, he said, I don't want you to ever rejoice in anything that's ungodly. Don't rejoice in that. Not only don't rejoice in it, I want you to live in direct opposition to any kind of ungodliness. So when immorality comes your way, when gossip comes your way, when slander comes your way, when opportunities arise for you to do things that violate the character and nature of God and violate God's word, I want you to live in opposition to that. I want you to refuse it and oppose it. See, that's what it means to pour what is evil. We live in a culture where we don't really do that, do we? Even as Christians. We take a little of this, we take a little of that, we kind of create our own little gray areas. And like, it's not that bad. We've all done it. I've done it. We've all done it. But if our love is going to be genuine, genuine love hates what is evil. Amen, church? And I'm not just talking about things outside your home, things you watch on the news. I'm talking about the things we let inside our home. Listen, we have got to be so aware with things that we see and things that we hear that when we hear ungodliness or we see ungodliness or we hear uh, unrighteousness or we see unrighteousness, that we pause and go, I refuse to let it in. I refuse to engage with it. I'm going to live in opposition to that. We've got to pour what is evil. But then he says, but I want you to cling to what is good. Now, that idea of good means what is true, what is right. You know what is true? Jesus. He said, I am the way, I am the what? The truth. So listen, it's not only about resisting the evils of the world and the things that try to come at us, but it's also about clinging to what is good, clinging to what is true, clinging to what is right. That means I'm making a commitment to live a life of moral excellence. That's what Paul's talking about. Now hear me on this church. If I were just to tell you, let your love be genuine, we'd all walk out and go, yes, I need to be more authentic in my love. But what does that genuine love look like? Genuine love hates what is evil, but it clings to what is good. Here's just a quick question. Does your love for the Lord look like that? And if your next line, if the next thought in your head is, well, but well, Doug, you don't understand. That means you're already trying to compromise and create a loophole in what we're talking about this morning. The answer just needs to be yes or no. Genuine love hates what is evil and clings to what is good. Then he tells us a second thing about genuine love. Look at me in verse 10. He says, love one another with brotherly affection. I love this next part. Outdo one another in showing honor. He says, genuine love not only hates what is evil and clings to what is good, but genuine love is devoted to one another. See, if we love God, our love should be reflected in our hate for evil and our love for what is good. But if we love other people, if we truly say that we love God, don't you like my shirt this morning? You're supposed to say, yes, I like your shirt, right? Love God and love people. If we're truly going to love God, we've got to hate what is evil, clean to what is good. But if we're going to love people, we have to be devoted to one another, Right? And we like to talk about loving people, but when the rubber hits the road and it requires something of us, that's when that's called into question, right? Do I really love the other person? He says, genuine love is devoted to one another, and he tells us how they're devoted. First of all, he says, love one another with brotherly affection. I want you to love one another with brotherly affection. That phrase, brotherly affection, is one word in the Greek language. It's, it's, it's phileo storgos. Phileo means brotherly or family, and storgos is another word for love. Here's what Paul's saying. I want you to love other people like they're part of your family. 
Now, some of you like maybe need to learn how to love your family better, but I'm just saying you get the idea here, right? Because typically our family are the people we are most endeared to, right? I mean, people in our family are the ones that we, that we will go to bat for more than anybody else. The people in our family are the ones that we will go any distance, any mileage to do whatever to, to take care of them. That's what he's saying. He said, listen, here's how you can be devoted to one another. You ready? You can love one another with brotherly affection. You can love one another like family. You know what that means? See, this kind of love, this brotherly affection, this kind of love in the family, you know what it allows for? It allows for weaknesses. You know what it allows for? It allows for faults. It even allows for differences. Even in my household, even though I'm normally always probably 100% right, it allows for differences for those who disagree with me, right? I mean, this kind of, I'm just kidding, I'm 99%. But anyway, the, the point is that when you love the like family, you allow weaknesses, you allow failures, you allow differences, and what you're focused on is commitment and loyalty. He says, listen, genuine love is devoted to one another. We should be devoted to one another. And one way we do that is by showing brotherly affection. Another way he says it is by honoring those others above yourself. He says, outdo one another. You know what that means? It's almost, I have this, I'm a competitive person. It's almost like a competition. Like, I'm going to do all I can to outdo Elijah to show him honor over him trying to show me honor. It's this notion that I'm going to do all that I can within me to make sure I don't ever puff up myself, but I build other people up. See, when we're devoted to one another, that means that we will show others honor. That word, that word honor just means to esteem them, to build them up, to be quick to compliment them. That's what it means to honor them. And the thing about it is when we honor one another, you know what this does for us? It protects our own issues with humility, right? When I pause and I build Joey, like Joey is awesome. Joey is one of the, the, the probably the eight or ten people that come every Sunday morning and make this thing happen. And he never complains. He never gripes. He just works and he works and he works. And most of the time when he slips out to go get Nancy, I don't even know he's left. I mean, he just is unassuming and he is just a servant of the Lord. And so if, when I spend my time building Joey up, which everything I said is absolutely true, when I build him up, guess who's not the, the hero of that story? Me. I'm not the hero. It's God working through Joey that is the hero of the story. And so when I'm able to build other people up, it helps me guard against the issues of pride and humility that I have. It also don't helps that. It also helps me address my priorities. When I build other people up, guess who the priority is? They are. Building them up is the priority over building myself up. Have you ever met somebody, and you've probably met people like this, but you could tell a story. Let's just say you tell a story, because we all talk about our kids. Tell a story about your kids, and they've got a story very similar to yours, and it's even better than yours, and they got to one-up. You ever met somebody like that? Come on, you met somebody like that? If you're sitting beside them, it's okay, just wink at me. I know who we're talking about. You know people like that, right? That's annoying, isn't it? That's, I mean, at some point you're like, just, I, I don't care anymore. Just stop telling me. I mean, but the thing about it is when we seek to honor others, to build them up, to esteem them, it protects against not only my sense of pride, but it protects this notion of that life's about me. It makes my priority other people. And so Paul says genuine love is devoted to one another. And then the third thing he says is this. Look with me in verse 11 through 12. Do not be slothful in zeal. But be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. And be constant in prayer. Now here's what Paul says. Genuine love 
always stays focused. Genuine love not only hates what is evil and clings to what is good. Genuine love is not only devoted to one another, but genuine love stays focused. And he lists some things that we need to be focused on. The first thing he mentions there is that we need to be focused on our passion to serve the Lord. Look what he says here. He says, do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. You know what slothful means? Come on, anybody know what slothful means? This is a good word to call your kids if they don't do what you ask them to do, right? You're being slothful today, right? You know what slothful means? Lazy. Just lazy. Anybody lazy in the room? Just lazy? And laziness, Tyler, laziness, you know where it also leads? Laziness can always lead to apathy. Are you hearing me on that? That when I become lazy about serving the Lord, when I become a sloth, so to speak, and my passion to serve the Lord, eventually that will lead me down a path of apathy towards serving the Lord. I just won't care anymore. And he says, listen, I want you to stay focused on your passion to serve the Lord. Don't be lazy. Don't be slothful. He said, rather be fervent in spirit. In other words, be passionate about what I want you to do, which is serve the Lord. And so if we're going to have genuine love, genuine love stays focused on our passion to serve. It also stays focused on rejoicing in hope. He says here, rejoice in hope. Now, that word rejoicing means to celebrate. As a follower of Jesus Christ, what is our hope? Somebody tell me, what is our hope? What do we long for that does not happen? Jesus coming again, right? Like, you know, at Christmas, we're going to celebrate the Advent this year. We've never done that. We're going to be celebrating Advent. Advent was all about celebrating the expectation of the one that was going to come, that was going to be the Savior of the world. And he's come. And as Christians, what is the thing that we most celebrate and rejoice? What is the hope that we have is that one day he is coming again. Amen? That one day he will come again and we will get to be with him forever. And remembering the hope that we have in Christ not only reminds us that this world is temporary and that we don't belong here, that we are just passing through, but also reminds us of the urgency, not that only we want to celebrate that moment, but we want to take as many people with us as we can. He said, listen, church, I want you to be focused. Genuine love stays focused, and it stays focused on the hope we have in Christ. Can we be honest and say that we live, and there's a word we use at our staff right now, in a, in a whirlwind. I mean, everything's just going around and around and around, and it seems like we just can't keep putting out fires. We put out one fire, there's another fire, and we just get into this cycle of craziness. And there's got to be a moment where we stop and go, I need my focus not to be on the whirlwind. My focus needs to be on the hope that I have in Christ, that one day the sky's going to split, Jesus coming again, world, peace out. I'm out of here because I'm going to spend forever with him in all eternity. And we've got to keep our eyes there. There's nothing wrong with looking to the hope that we have in Christ. Amen? And Paul says, I want you to stay focused on that. He also said, I want you to stay focused on being patient in times of tribulation. Did you pick up on that in verse 12? Be patient in tribulation. If we're going to stay focused, we've got to stay focused on being patient in times of tribulation. That word patient and the original language is not in the passive voice. It's in the active. Passive would be patient and just meaning, hey, I want you to endure it. <laughs> I just want you to tolerate it. I just want you to make it through it. You ever feel like that before? But for him, passion, uh, patient is in the active voice. And it means I want you to be steadfast. In other words, that when difficult times, anybody ever not face a difficult time? We all have, haven't we? He says, when difficult times come, when tribulations come, listen, I want you to choose intentionally, on purpose, 
to be patient. I want you to choose intentionally and say, I'm going to wait on the Lord. Why? Because in waiting on the Lord, I'm acknowledging that God has a plan, that God is always on time, that God is in control, that this is temporary, and that God is going to take care of me. He said, listen, I want you to be patient. I want you to be focused on being patient in times of tribulation. Do you know why Paul would say that? Because when we go through difficult times, typically where is our focus? On the situation on the circumstance. Many, many, many years ago, I heard Mark Lowry speaking, and the comedian, Christian comedian Mark Lowry, and he made this comedy. One of his favorite passages in Scripture was this, and this too shall pass. And we should have that attitude. That no matter what I'm going through right now, there needs to be an intentional patience on my part on waiting on the Lord, because eventually this too shall pass. The last thing he says that we need to focus on here. And he says, you know, if your genuine love stays focused, and the last thing he mentions is we need to be constant in prayer. I love this. That if we genuinely love the Lord, listen, if we genuinely love the Lord, like Paul's talking about, we are going to stay focused on our passion to serve. We are going to stay focused on rejoicing in the hope we have in Christ. We're going to stay focused on being patient during times of tribulation, but we need to stay focused on prayer. We need to stay focused on spending time communing with the Holy God. We need to spend time on our knees, on our face, crying out to an eternal, holy God. Listen, I love my family with all of my heart. But do you know how I demonstrate that love for them? I spend time with them, right? I spend time with them. And how do we demonstrate how much we love our Heavenly Father? We spend time with them. How would you ever know the heart of God if you don't spend time with him? How would you ever know the mind of God or the will of God, the character of God? How would you ever know it if we don't spend time with him? And genuine love stays focused, and one of the things we must focus on is prayer. And then the last thing that Paul mentions about genuine love is found in verse 13. He says this, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Here's the last point. Genuine love always addresses the needs of the family. Genuine love always addresses the needs of the family. And he says two things here. The first one he says is you can tr- contribute to the needs of the, those that, and the saints. You can contribute to the needs of the saints. What does it mean to contribute? Well, a couple of things. One thing it means to contribute is to share in the need. So if, you're, if someone in the family has a need and you're going to share in that need, that means you are going to, you're going to walk a journey with them. It means basically this notion of that maybe they have a problem, maybe they have a difficult time, and they need someone to come alongside them. They can help them walk through it and figure out how are they supposed to respond and what are they supposed to do. So as the body of Christ, if we genuinely love one another, one thing that we need to do is make sure that we're sensitive to address the needs of the body of Christ. When someone's in need, we are there to address it. We are there to show love and kindness to them. And one way we do that is by contributing, contributing by, by helping out with the need, by, by literally sharing in that need, by giving wisdom, direction, support. But another way we can contribute is by sharing the need. There's a difference. Sharing in the need is I support you, walk a journey with you. Sharing the need means I need to give something to you. That could be maybe a home has burnt down and we give them clothing. That could be somebody's in a financial crisis and they need to have money. And whatever it is, as the body of Christ, we're to contribute, whether it's to share in the need or to share the need, that's what we're called to do. But he said not only contribute, he also says this, seek to show hospitality. 
Do you know what psychologists have labeled the number one need of humans is? The number one need of every human who's ever lived, the greatest need of every person, according to psychologists, is the need to belong. Belonging. That when people belong and people get connected and people are engaged, it brings value, it brings purpose, and it brings a sense of joy into their life. And he says, I want you to seek to show hospitality. In other words, I want you to be a welcoming people. I want you to be a people that encourage one another. I want you to be people that rejoice with one another. I want you to be people that weep when other people are weeping. I want you to be people that embraces and grabs your arms around people and say, we love you and we're glad that you are here. That's why for me, one of the most important ministries we have in this church is our host teams because that's where that journey begins, way out in the parking lot. And he says, I want you to seek to show hospitality, meaning I want you to seek to show ways to extend kindness to other people. And so when Paul starts off with this great statement, I want you to be genuine, let your love be genuine, he could have stopped there, but he didn't. He said, here's what genuine love does. You ready? Genuine love hates what is evil and clings to what is good. Genuine love is devoted to one another. Genuine love stays focused. And genuine love addresses the needs of the family. And here's a question I want you to think about this morning. Are we, are you, exhibiting genuine love? Now, don't give me the answer. I think I am. No, no, no. Come on. Come on. Think about it. When we just talked about genuine love is, do you really hate evil and cling to what is good? Are we really devoted to one another? Are we focused in how we're living? Are we trying to find out what the needs of the body are and meet those in whatever way, whether it's sharing in the need or sharing the need with them? Are we genuinely exhibiting genuine love? Maybe you're here this morning and you're a follower of Christ and you say, you know what, Doug? As I look at my life, I'm not as devoted as I should be. I'm not as um, focused as I should be. I'm not as sensitive to the needs of others as I should be. But I want to be. Well, here in just a moment, we're going to sing and we're going to sing about the love, the genuine love of our Heavenly Father. And if that's you and you wrestle with that and you want to make a commitment to the Lord, the altar will be open. You can just come up here, get on your knees before Holy God and say, Lord, I want to be more devoted. I want to be more focused. I want to be more sensitive to the needs around me. Or maybe you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ and you need to make a real decision. And you need to be confronted with the genuine love of our Heavenly Father who loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're like, man, Doug, I've been here, I've been sticking for six and I'm here and I, I experience a genuine love of this body that I've never experienced before and I want to be part of that family. Well, we love that. And you need to make that decision. Or maybe some of you are in the room and simply all what you need is, I just need somebody to pray with me. I need somebody to intercede on my behalf to the Heavenly Father because I'm struggling. And if you need to make any of those three decisions, if you need to accept Christ, if you want to be part of this church, or if you need somebody to pray with you, in just a moment, while I'm here by this, this pipe and drape, Don and Terry Jacobs and Jason and, and, and Kelly Belcher are going to be right over there and love to get you away from the, the loudness of the speakers and just spend time praying with you. If you need to make a decision, that opportunity is open to you. So let's all stand together if you would. Everybody stand with me. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Let's just stand together. And I do pray for every believer in the room that we would look in the spiritual mirror of our lives right now 
and just simply ask the question, is my love for the Lord genuine? Do I really hate what is evil and cling to what is good? Is my love for others genuine? Am I devoted to one another? Am I focused in how I live my life? Am I sensitive to the needs of those around me with the heart to meet those needs? I pray for believers today that if you're struggling and you're not as devoted, you're not as focused, you're not as sensitive, that you would cry out to God and say, Lord, would you change my heart? Because I want to love you and I want to love people like Jesus loved people. And so, Lord, would your Holy Spirit give me the power to up my game in my devotion, up my game in my focus, up my game in my sensitivity. And if you need to do that, man, this altar is going to be open for you. But I know sure as I'm standing here, there's some others of you in the room You just need somebody to put their arm around you, to love on you, and to pray for you. And if you need that this morning, I don't know what you're going through, and you don't even have to share all your junk, but if you just want somebody to pray with you, Don and Terry and Jason and Kelly, over here to to your right and to my left, just will take you outside the pipe and drape just for a moment and spend some time praying with you. Maybe you need to make a decision of joining this church or accepting Christ. They would love to talk to you about that. If you're struggling today, hear me. If you're struggling, please don't be so prideful that you're going to leave this place feeling like you don't need anybody else. Maybe you're grieving today. Maybe you're hurting today. Maybe you're struggling and confused today. Would you let these people just lift you up before the Lord and ask God to do a work in your life? So have the Lord lead you. Would you respond this morning? Come to the altar. Go ask for prayer. They would love to do that. God, I love you. I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the words of Paul who makes this profound statement. Let our love be genuine. And God, that seems so simple to do. But when we think about the the, the depth of what genuine love looks like, it is so difficult. And God, as believers, if we're struggling today, will we make a right with you? Would we make a new commitment? Take that step of faith. But God, I pray today for people who know your genuine love and they're struggling, they're hurting, they're frustrated, they're confused, they're disenfranchised, they're distraught this morning, Lord. Maybe even they're depressed. Would they have the courage, Lord, to make their way and let Don and Terry or Jason and Kelly just pray with them, just to lift them up this morning. God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit being present here this morning. And my prayer, Lord, for all of us is that we would be sensitive to your Holy Spirit and that today we would respond as you lead us. For it's in your precious and your Holy Son's name we pray. Amen. The altar's open. If you need prayer, right over here, they'd love to pray with you. Would you respond as the Lord might lead you?